This is IVP. Have you heard about the new monthly book club from InterVarsity Press? IVP Book Drop is the perfect club for readers who want to grow spiritually, hear from diverse voices, and start powerful conversations on today's most important cultural topics. Plus, it's only $9.99 each month. When you join IVP Book Drop, you'll receive our best-selling title, Reading While Black by Issa Macaulay, as your very first book. And after that, you'll continue to receive one curated book a month for just $9.99. As a listener of the Disruptors podcast, you already know many of the diverse authors featured like Issa Macaulay, and you'll meet even more authors like them each month. IVP Book Drop is the easiest and most affordable way to receive the latest IVP books from your favorite authors. To learn more and join today for only $9.99, visit ivpress.com slash disrupt22. That's ivpress.com slash d-i-s-r-u-p-t-22. Save big on books worth talking about by signing up for IVP Book Drop today. the Christian social scientists are, are, we are, we are a unique breed of folks. <laughs> for sure. For sure. For sure. Especially if you've been in Christian higher ed, for sure. Oh, yes. Well, that's a, yes, that's even a more, that's a unicorn. Dr. Christina Edmondson holds a PhD in counseling psychology and a bachelor's degree in sociology. Yay, sociology <laughs> in the house. Christina is the dean for intercultural student development at Calvin University. Is that correct? I, well, I, I was. I was. I too left Christian higher ed in a formal way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Well, let's definitely talk about that. Uh, she is the co-author of two books, Faithful Anti-Racism, Moving Past Talk to Systemic Change, and Truth's Table, Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation. I love that title. She also co-hosts the Truth's Table podcast. So welcome, Dr. Christina. Thank you so much. It is, it, I'm, I'm grateful that you all extended this invitation. I'm happy to be with you today. Christina, I've been reading your book, Faithful Anti-Racism, and I was especially taken by your chapter on racial trauma, which is something I am personally working through, perhaps Mm. a lifelong journey, Mm. um, particularly, though, in the context of evangelicalism. Sure. So as I just shared with you before the podcast started, I recently left an evangelical Christian college and now finding out you also share that experience. (laughs) And so this chapter really resonated with me because I I love this part where you write, too often white Christian spaces, even when well-intended, draft people of color to offer their skills, suffering, and selves to the advancement of white racial enlightenment. The request to quote-unquote share your perspective is often re-traumatizing and white-centric. 
And so I, I think I've experienced this almost every time I am asked to do any talks or any meeting that I'm in, any kind of heritage month, any kind of, oh my gosh, the, the recent um, anti-Asian hate. There was a request mm. to kind of share all of our trauma. I actually refused along with my one of my psychology professor friends, but there was this like need that like well not need but this demand of us that no we need to know and mm-hmm. we're like no we don't want to tell you <laughs> so right. can you tell tell me a little bit more about what you mean here let's unpack this because evangelicalism has a uh, at least a stated high value on relationship kind of this i would say nepotistic <laughs> connection mm-hmm. Storytelling is is very common as the the go-to intervention for uh, racial understanding or the pursuit uh, in name of racial justice. With that being said, it is incredibly important. Storytelling is important, like hearing people's narrative and censoring their voices. I I agree with that. But I think it can be uh, a one-stop shop or it can be used in that way. Mm -hmm. And we can also use people um, whose stories are very personal to them and their stories are still in process. And so I oftentimes would would recommend uh, biographies for people to read, people have who have who have who have given their story mm-hmm. versus drafting staff or faculty for that particular work or experience. I also think that what we need to spend more time talking about is uh, certainly certainly my story as a woman of color in higher ed. Yes, there's a there's a place for it. It's important, et cetera. But the conversation that is not happening enough is a conversation about what what does it mean to be white. There's very little thoughtful space that is curated in Christian higher education or in Christian institutions for people to really sit with and wrestle with that question. And it it is reasonable that people would not be very nuanced and developed because they're often deficient because of lack of experience in practice. <laughs> but there's no time like the present <laughs> to start that <laughs> process and to demonstrate that type of vulnerability and solidarity and for people to start doing their own racial identity formation work instead of leaving that on the shoulders of, of faculty and staff of color who are doing a variety of things, including mentoring students of color, managing microaggressions, often drafted to do diversity work, even if that was not what they were initially (laughs) wanted to do with their career per se. I just think it's important that that work is done by everyone in the community. And certainly we're not asking for those who are most marginalized to be the most vulnerable in sharing their story. We should not be doing that. Yeah, I feel like there's that risk when you share of people challenging you because if you're sharing publicly, then you're not mm-hmm. in safe spaces where people are going to care necessarily or just see you as something to, you know, argue against, right? So for argument's sake, rather than, oh, this is a person that is sharing. Because I, I've shared uh, racism in my life or microaggressions and have people completely deny it, right? right. Or, or dismiss it. And, and we used to, at, at the university, have students of color do this as well. Right. And some somehow like having, you know, young students of color come tell their story, then yeah. faculty who are maybe biased and racist will all of a sudden have an enlightenment. But we did this year after year after year. I, I, you know, I was there 14 years. I felt like I saw it every year and I thought, 
isn't this enough? When is enough? You know, <laughs> when is enough trauma going to kind of be the tipping point for you to be convinced that this is not a lie? This is a, yeah. a reality and that we need to actually have systemic change, not just right. almost like it becomes entertainment. I mean, I don't think anyone sees it that way, It's all, but it feels mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like productive sharing. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it can it can certainly feel voyeuristic. Mm-hmm. And ultimately work out work itself out in unloving ways. I think there are just you know there's some different philosophies about student agency. And so when we bring students up to say tell your story, a student of color, there is a place for that for them to express agency yes. and and advocacy and activism in all of those things, right? And and yet I tended to err on the side of making sure that faculty and staff were doing the work and not putting that burden on our students to do that, unless that's really what they wanted to do. (laughs) And then what I could offer them is a snapshot as best as I could of what the future might hold in doing that, right? But certainly I would not want us to be misusing them or overtaxing them, especially, and it, it does concern them. It is certainly their business. It is their school at the end of the day. But there were, I, I can think of many institutions and even my own experiences where there needed to be a faculty, staff, or administrator make the statement. And here was a student who is still being graded by professors, who still needs letters of recommendations. Mm -hmm. Here they are (laughs) saying the things, um, in which, again, if that's what they want to do, we want them to have the platform to to express their agency. But I want to make sure that that we are doing the work that we are supposed to be doing and that we didn't just put that on the students' shoulders. Yeah, and I feel like, I don't know. In Christian universities, students, at least in my experience, tend to be more, they kind of just not obey, but I think they see their professors slightly differently because I feel like in, you know, when I was at UCLA, I don't know. I mean, there's definitely respect, but there's also kind of like, well, you know, we have a voice and we can protest like at the university that I was at. There wasn't much protest or there wasn't a lot of, I think, cultivating of student agency outside of what they're told. And I feel like this has to do with the way churches are very top down. Sure. And this kind of, I don't know, sometimes felt like Sunday school. And and I think maybe they see us that way. So Mm -hmm. I don't, I wouldn't say it's just kind of how, how we treat students. But I think that's a, that's a good point though, because maybe there is student agency. And certainly I think students should be able to voice discontent right? And have their Absolutely. any kind of racism or microaggressions or et cetera happening to them to be aired out. I just felt like there was no positive response. You know, yeah. there wasn't kind of, a, I don't mm-hmm. know, there was nothing. It was just kind of, you tell your story, maybe mm-hmm. people say nothing, hopefully mm-hmm. no one says anything bad. And then yeah. that's it. They're, they're dismissed, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and there was no positive outcome or real outcome that results from that. Yeah, the question is, to what end? How is this a part of a larger strategy for systemic change, for congruence with stated mission and practice? And so I'm a strategic thinker. So I'm often thinking about this is good for the purpose of. (laughs) So um, and I think we can easily get into a type of, gosh, a type of trauma pornography in which we exploit and objectify people under the, under the guise of, I want to hear you out. I want to center your voice. But uh, that voice then isn't 
creating change within, it's not being allowed to create mm-hmm. <laughs> change in the system. Mm-hmm. And there's no accountability then to what, what do you then have to do in light of the information that you now have, have, have learned that's been shared with you. I think that can cause people to walk away feeling as though their voice was exploited and should have never been used to begin with. And it can end up silencing people and certainly exhausting them and certainly bearing the burden of racial trauma as a response to it. Can you talk a little bit more about what racial trauma is, how you define it in the book? Yeah. So trauma in in general, we can think of trauma as an experience, a circumstance that that alters our perception. It alters the way that we see the world, the way that we see ourselves, our body, the way we see God. And trauma is necessarily the incident itself, but is it's the it's the after the afterworking of the incident, the aftermath of the incident that we carry with us. So it's the injuries that we sustain, right? So you get into a car accident, uh, that's the experience, but it is the what happens to the body then and what it experiences is the trauma that we then need to recover from. And because of that, um, we can we can often have similar experiences, but walk away with different trauma experiences and the depth of the trauma can be different from one person to the next, despite the experience on the surface looking the same. We tend to want to be cookie cutter. We tend to want, you know, if if you've had this experience, we all should respond in this way. But no, we all walk out of the car accident, so to speak, to use that example, um, having experienced different trauma, different impact. And so we want to be wise about being able to assess the different traumas that we all have and we walk away with, even though it appears we've had the same experience. I say that because there are times when we can pit people against each other, particularly people of color, who may all be a part of, be in this ecosystem of racial bigotry and hierarchy and stratification, but are walking out with some different traumas that look different. And we can uh, look at someone who has a different trauma expression and say like, oh, well, this wasn't that bad. Look, they're, they're okay. So it's important for us not to compare, compare trauma from one group to the next in that regard. So racial trauma, race in itself is a, I would make the case as a traumatizing concept. <laughs> uh, certainly from a Christian perspective, race is not just the the categorization of people based on, you know, sometimes national, nationality <laughs> and, and phenotypical characteristics, but it's the classification as well as the stratification is what we are thinking about when we think about a concept like race. And I'm thinking about race as used from the 1500s up until now, uh, when the term really began to be used in a pseudoscientific way to sort people around the globe. And the reason why we sort people, right, is to rank them, to stratify them for the purpose of how we'll be able to exploit them or the roles they'll play within society. And so race has a, has a, a functional component to it. Uh, it's not just a description that doesn't carry any type of action behind it. That description necessarily links it to the way that people are positioned throughout society and the work that they do, the value that they have as being by the society and others, et cetera. And so I would say race in of itself is, is traumatizing, certainly from a Christian perspective. And so racial trauma is, is just a, is not just a necessary, it's, it's a guaranteed outcome of the racialized society that we find ourselves in. And so the, the trauma that comes from being stratified 
towards the bottom or, you know, towards in terms of how people view us hierarchically. And that that could certainly shift from context to context, right? For sure. But in general, we're talking about, let's say, the United States and um, historically, mm-hmm. people of color, women, white women, women of color have been so. Well, I just I just threw in gender there and <laughs> intersectionality, but <laughs> sure, just all these identities of course, that of course, that, of course. that mm-hmm. affect trauma, affect us, and therefore have trauma. All of that happens in a way where it's not just one time, like you said, right? It's and mm-hmm. it's not just an accident. So, what happens when it compounds over mm-hmm. time? Yeah, yeah. Oh, when it when it compounds over time. I mean, I, the way I would describe it to students, um, traditional age or not, it would be through the game of Jenga. Particularly if you're thinking about something, Nancy, like when we, if if we're thinking about microaggressions specifically, mm-hmm. I think about the game of Jenga, and uh, my family loves a good game night. <laughs> but you know, in, in Jenga, you're you're removing those blocks, right? And mm-hmm. early on, I mean, you can remove about three or four blocks. You can experience things. If we're comparing those blocks to microaggressions, where you still feel fairly stabilized, you can kind of swat them away like a mosquito. Mm -hmm. As that game goes on, as your experiences go on, microaggressions, racial indignities begin to compound. And that structure, you, (laughs) gets more and more wobbly, gets more and more fragile. Um, And oftentimes people don't experience or have to reckon with the consequences of racial microaggressions until it's really the last Jenga block that's pulled and it comes crashing down. And then people are like, wow, this person is big mad. What happened? Where did this come from? But in reality, there have been then these blocks that have been removed, being removed all along the way and had been impacting that person or that system, that structure, et cetera. I, I think there is a deceptive quality, particularly to modern day racism. And if you think about the work around, you know, racism without racist, et cetera, kind of the autopilot ingrained systemic nature of racism that can sometimes cause people to feel like, oh, well, there's there's no problem here, nothing to see here until that last Jenga block is pulled and it comes crashing down and, and it becomes un- undeniable because of the, the reactions that come from it. Yeah, I think about um, Asian Americans and the recent rise in anti-Asian hate coming out of COVID, how I read articles where a lot of Asian Americans were coming into greater consciousness because, whoa, now there's violence, right? Not that there wasn't um, before, but maybe if folks are in middle, upper middle class areas where they're not necessarily encountering racism, but certainly I would think that everyone probably encounters microaggressions. I remember when I taught Asian American studies for the first time and one of my students who's Asian American, it's like when I started talking about it, he started remembering lots Mm -hmm. of things that had happened that made him uncomfortable, but he didn't have the language or the knowledge Mm -hmm. to process it. So even that, right, it's like you're you're, you're doing Jenga and you don't even know that you're wobbly, <laughs> right? right? And then all of a sudden someone names it. You, look, you only have, you know, you're only sitting on one block. <laughs> and then you realize, oh my gosh, all these other blocks have been taken away yeah. and I didn't even realize. And so I feel like 
Mm. That's kind of happening amongst a lot of Asian Americans. Certainly there's a lot of Asian Americans who already knew about, um, and cer- you know, I, that's why it's, it's so important. I think ethnic studies and also just history, <laughs> the things that people are attacking as CRT that are just historical facts or <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, things that deserve more than one paragraph. Like, you know, we shouldn't have just one paragraph for the Chinese Exclusion Act that really had a huge decades, impact on, decades. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> on, on immigration and, mm-hmm. and certainly the Japanese you know, incarceration where civil rights are violated and Absolutely. xenophobia is is at its height. All these things are so important for education. I think it's not enjoyable in the sense that it's not <laughs> it's not like peaceful, but for those of us who are already experiencing these things, things have never been peaceful, right? That's and right. So, that's right. And that's the trauma. For sure. Well, and I also think because because it's a, one of the features of the ecosystem is a rewarding of people who appear to be able to succeed in the midst of the toxicity, right? There's a rewarding of that. There's the yeah. there's the pitting of one group against the other, and there, therefore there, there are times when there when there's an escalation of the indignities, you see people kind of move into this kind of trauma triggered racial formation work within themselves, right? Because we do reward different groups for what what we'll call is like their perseverance, their grit, <laughs> their fortitude uh, to be able to persevere or achieve in, in air quotes within a racist ecosystem. And I think that happens obviously um, from one group to the next, but also uh, in, in an inter- kind of intra-group way where there are people who are rewarded for their persistence or for their silence around racial injustice. As well as forgiveness. I feel like I've been for in sure. so many. For um, sure. You know, you're someone like Charleston and, you know, the killing of of Black folks in churches and then the kind of forgiveness. I remember being mm-hmm. um, at my university mm-hmm. and people just lauding that forgiveness. Yeah. And I thought... Oh, this just doesn't feel right, you know, because when there's other indignities, there is no forgiveness, you know, right. when it comes to certain groups of people being victimized. For and sure. It's just kind of a hypocrisy of application of or expectations of, yeah, of Christian values that come to light only yeah. for certain groups and not others. And and I think that the world really sees that hypocrisy, actually, with social media, <laughs> people are always calling it out, right? Totally, totally. And, and I feel like I just heard, I think it was maybe The Daily Show or one of those where they're just, you know, oh, it was The Daily Show talking about how aren't Christians supposed to be this? It was mm-hmm. it was about policy, some policy yeah. thing. And they're like, Christians, and then they would cite Jesus and Jesus did this, right? And so <laughs> it's not like, it's not like the world doesn't know about Jesus. They can cite well, Jesus and there there, there, are diff- there are different Jesuses. Oh, exactly. <laughs> so it depends on which Jesus we're talking about. Yes. Unfortunately. Yes. Yeah. Unfortunately, and Jesus, thankfully. it's like Jesus is trotted out on certain times and other times mm-hmm. versus I feel like I, I remember actually interviewing for my position. This was, you know, 14 years ago. And I remember mm. they asked me, who is Jesus? And <laughs> I talked about Jesus's, you know, ministry for the vulnerable and kind of basically why I thought Jesus was 
awesome. <laughs> and, then, and then they're like, maybe a little more basic than that. I was like, son of God. <laughs> they're like, yes, that's what we're looking for. I was like, right. but, but, but let me tell you about why I think Jesus is, you know, yeah, yeah. amazing. And so just, yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's, it, it's interesting because depending on where you are in the social story, right, you, you may have a believer and I'm, I'm one of them who would have, who would affirm the, the, the power and the holiness and the sovereignty of God. But all of that actually is a bit frightening when I really reckon with it, if I'm also not holding hands with the compassion and the goodness and the centering of the suffering of God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it is It is not only God's power, it's God's character that makes me love the Lord. And so power in and of itself without the character trait of kindness and mercy is actually frightening. It is God's power used on the agenda of God's love that, for me, makes God God worthy of my praise and adoration. God is not a tyrant <laughs> with just power. It is power on the agenda of seeing and loving the, the hurting, the marginalized, the broken. And now, Deeper Thoughts with Nancy Wong Yoon. Today, I read from Healing Racial Trauma by Sheila Weisrow. Chapter 2, Fatigue. Racism is relentless. It's likely in the future that we will experience racial battle fatigue or wariness from yet another racial conversation or be deeply grieved by a racial incident. If and when this happens and we are weary, we need to remember that we do not have sufficient power to rescue or to save anyone, including ourselves. Jesus tells us, Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30 We can combat racial battle fatigue and also lighten our loads by taking care of our health, or we become vulnerable to racial battle fatigue simply because we fail to do the basics, eating well, getting sleep, and exercising. If we know that specific situations trigger racial battle fatigue, we can try to avoid those stressful steps. Sometimes we can't prevent them, but we can limit our intake of social media and despairing conversations and rather save our energy for the battles that lie ahead. Taking time to experience the beauty around us in art and nature and prioritizing life-affirming relationships can help accelerate healing and recovery. We need others who will help us to identify any negative patterns in our lives and encourage us to take proactive steps to avoid and manage fatigue. When we face racially charged situations, With our focus on the Lord, we see that we are not alone or powerless. We can choose to stay or flee, get real or forfeit, stand or fold, surrender or fight. That was Deeper Thoughts with Nancy Wong-Yoon. As a listener of the Disruptors podcast, you can get 30% off and free U.S. shipping on any book when you use the promo code DISRUPT at ivypress.com. That's D-I-S-R-U-P-T. And join us next time for more of Nancy's Deeper Thoughts. Yeah, I have been struggling since leaving my university, realizing that 
you know, there are a lot of scars and trauma where I'm not even seeing, I think I've, in order to kind of survive spiritually, it's like, I, I almost like didn't think about God as deeply as I could because of the messaging that was so toxic, you know, the, the kind of very heavy racism and sexism that was sometimes often justified by, you know, in the name of God. And so I felt like, oh, I just, I can't think about God because it hurts too much to think about God. And so now that I've left, I'm trying to figure out, yeah, how do I, how do I, you know, who is going to acknowledge this harm? Because you talk about the solution of acknowledging harm and developing anti-racist restorative justice. And I was like, well, you know, what do you do when none of those folks that hurt you are going to admit anything, right? They don't think of it as racism. They don't think of it as sexism. There's just, just patent denial. And so how do you then as a you know, person either still in there, because I have a lot of friends who are still in that, you know, and, and those of us who have gotten out but don't want to walk away from the faith. But what do we do? How do we how do we heal? Mm-hmm. What I would say is that for believers, healing is one of our blood-bought rights. Mm-hmm. It is something that it's, it has been given to us to do this, that we ought not, we, we, ought, we ought not to reject that or think that we are not do that. It has been won for us in the resurrection. <laughs> we are people that are mm-hmm. going to be healed, even if we don't feel like it right now. Like this is a part <laughs> of what we get. <laughs> right now we have a sense that we need healing, <laughs> but one yeah. day we will be whole, one day we will be healed. And so it is, a, it is a good desire. I think it's a godly desire to want to be healed, want to be made whole, and to want justice to be done where we have mm-hmm. been wronged and mistreated. Um, I often share, my, my background is in trauma, trauma therapy, so uh, domestic violence, military-related trauma, mm-hmm. sexual abuse, you name it. And, and from that work and from those experiences, I, it has become more and more clear to me that our permission to begin the process of healing cannot be <laughs> contingent on the revelation or the spiritual maturity or the insight of those who did us wrong or who were silent or who benefit from that. Although it is natural for us to have a longing for some to, to be looked at by that system and say, you know what, you are right. <laughs> I was wrong. That desire, I think, is, is a legitimate desire. But once we reckon with that, once we say that aloud to ourselves in our head and our heart, then I think we have to do the work of releasing that and knowing that, no, the, the system that has harmed me does not have the capacity to be the system that heals me. And to surrender really that system over, like, you know, I'm now putting you in the hands of God for for either justice or for judgment. I mean, it's the Lord's (laughs) choice, y'all. And I do believe in judgment. (laughs) So I'm like, I'm putting that over there to you because, you know, grace belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But also, so does vengeance, you know. (laughs) And um, so putting that over there because vengeance is not mine, right? Mm -hmm. I've kind of been given my marching orders, right, to treat everybody right as the the Black church hymn goes and, and to love everybody. And that really actually requires me to hand those things over to God. And the way that I do that is obviously through prayer, uh, mindfulness, meditation, visualization. I mean, really even thinking about what would it mean if I could put put my experiences in a box, box people in a box and hand them over and say, mm-hmm. they are not my burden to, to carry any longer. And I think we can also remind ourselves by being in community, because much of our identity and our formation and our healing is going to be in community, is that we can find others who have had similar experiences so that we can be affirmed in our own story 
and that we can learn from each other, people who are at a different place in the journey than we are. And I think we need to take racial trauma seriously as we as we should take every form of trauma and think about the ways that it impacts our, our brains and our bodies and our relationships and our way we view God. And we have to do bit by bit the work of applying the, the best of, 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 of science and the best disciplines of the Christian faith uh, so that we can be whole and healed and healing, I-N-G. Because the truth is we experience things on this side of glory that they're going to sting for a long time. But even if we're not healed with an E-D, healing, healing, the process of it is something that we can embrace and start on. Mm, I love that. Actually, you know, you just gave me an idea. Maybe I will write down all the hurt, all the names of people who hurt me and put it in a box and just kind of, I don't know, I don't know if I burn it, but just like throw it and, you know, just, you know, really kind of visually, tangibly, concretely give it over, right? Because I think there is, it's, it's like I've spent so much time suppressing and ignoring in order to survive that I've buried it really deeply, right? And I think that when I started to think about God and praising God, I was just like, I don't feel like that because I think I have, I must, you know, I think I must have carried some resentment towards God. It's like, why am I, why did you call me here among yep. these people? Yep. And they <laughs> do yep. not seem like people that follow you or they, they say they do. <laughs> yeah, they say they do, but I'm so confused. And why was I there in that, you know, desert for so long? Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. Amen. <laughs> what 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 is going on? What is the meaning of this God? What is the meaning yes, of this? Yes. No, absolutely, absolutely. But I th- I think when we take people from our head and we put put their names on paper and then we hand them over, you know, one of the places where they're doing so much destruction, they, they may not even be thinking about us anymore. But but they are in our heads no. and, and they're in our they're in our mind all the time, yes. you know, wreaking havoc. And to remove them from our mind through these intentional practices and to place them in God's hands, the right intervention for them will take place. And it's it's not my job to fix them. And I would also say this too, there are some situations where a part of our embracing of Micah 6, 8, right, of doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with God includes calls for accountability. I'm always struck by the New Testament passages that that discourage Christians from, from suing other Christians. And I used to read that many, many years ago and go like, hmm, was that a thing? And now I'm like, oh, I can totally see why that would be a thing. <laughs> I can totally see I can totally see why it would be a thing that the Christians who are at different places in the, in in society would have these types of issues that 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 a believer would say, you know what, the church is not handling this, the denomination or whatever, the fellowship is not handling this. I'm going to have to go to external means and knock on the doors of the civil magistrate in order for there to be some earthly measure of intervention and justice done. I I see that there are times in which where through prayer we find that our that our our course of action certainly is to take it from our head to writing, et cetera. But also in some cases, it may be formal and public statements. It may be for certain egregious and illegal offenses. We we are called to do justice. (laughs) And so, um, and 
there is so much, I think, manipulation towards a Christian people, particularly Christian women. I think there's a, a particular gender dynamic on this where there is an obsession, particularly in some evangelical circles of niceness and letting things go, that we don't go about the business of doing justice, which may in some cases require calling in a mediator, working with lawyers, <laughs> reporting crimes, if that's the case, whatever it might be. We also have liberty to do that. And for some people, that's going to be a part of their healing process is that, you know, I'm on the board for The Witness. And a while back, The Witness had a campaign called Leave Loud. And um, we would joke about that (laughs) off the record. And some people do need to leave loud. They need to leave stomping out of that room. Some people need to, some people just need to leave. I don't care how you do it. You just need to leave. And some people need need to leave in a way in which they, they sound some alarms as they're leaving out. But that's not everybody's work to do. And this is where I think there is much grace that can be given for us to prayerfully seek what is the best way to honor Christ and to pursue our own healing in the way that we depart, the way that we leave. Yeah, when I left, I had an opportunity. Actually, I was still sort of there. I had already made a decision to leave and there was a news journalist who wanted to, you know, write an expose Mm -hmm. article. And I just wasn't ready at that moment, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and I didn't totally trust the journalist. I wasn't sure if things were going to, I didn't know what kind of story he was going to tell. So, but then when I left, when I finally decided to leave and another journalist came and she was vouched by another black female faculty that she was cool. (laughs) And so I decided, yes, okay, now's the time to tell the story. And, you know, they ended up also as journalists should, contacting my university. And though the responses were lackadaisical and not satisfying, I felt like at least I made my experience known. And I I was not going to go quietly because I knew I knew almost everybody who had left a big exodus of of white women and people of color. I don't think any of them said anything <laughs> now that I think about it. not not publicly, right? And I just wanted to say something publicly because I feel like that's how you know administrators are going to be kept accountable at least just perception-wise, right? PR, but you know, not everybody like you said, I mean people are worried about about their jobs, especially if they're staying in Christian higher ed, whether, you know, and this applies to people who are working in the church. And, you know, when you leave, it's like to have that, it's like a divorce. <laughs> you kind of like, painful. you know, you break it, you, you, you have to actually, if you're going to leave loud there, you have to be willing to pay the consequences. Oh, oh, for sure. For sure. It, it is, um, It's painful. I think sometimes organizations look at people uh, that are telling the truth and telling the story of what's happening oftentimes as troublemakers, Mm -hmm. as as histrionic, whatever. There's all kinds of gaslighting and name calling that can take place. But I have a great deal of empathy because in in doing that, that is a part of them pursuing their healing through justice. But they're also they're also taking hits in doing that. They are they are they're bearing the weight of this experience. And they know oftentimes that it's likely that they will not be believed. There will be people who they thought were their dear friends who get quiet, uh, whatever it might be. Mm. And that's just, it's just painful. It's really, really painful. And we, and that's a risk for sure. It's a, it's a huge, and it's incredible. It can be incredibly lonely to do that type of work. Again, that's why community is going to be so important in the healing process. It is. And you know what? I feel like, gosh, when I was there, and even the community that I have were also in pain, right? When you're when you're with a lot of people who are also in similar circumstances of trauma, 
it's hard. It's like you have to go outside, right? If you're if you're all within a confined, oppressive environment, I, I started to notice that people were just not healthy and that I couldn't help people because people didn't even know what it meant to be liberated, right? I guess what you said about dealing with trauma, they dealt with trauma by essentially keeping quiet and accepting the system. And so when someone like me comes in and says, hey, let's do something different, they're they don't like it, <laughs> you know, instead of feeling like, here, you know, take my hand, let's get out. I felt like they were pushing me away or even punishing me for even bringing mm. it up. So that was hard, really hard. It's it's painful. And again, that that isolation, that loneliness, you think about just the nervous system response, right? So mm-hmm. to to trauma of a variety of forms, right? Fight, flight, freeze. But the, the, the fourth one that psychologists mm-hmm. talk a lot about is also fawn. Fawn. And so you have people in systems who we would look at and say, like, do they get it? Or like, why are they complicit with this? Particularly other people of color, right? Their trauma response could be fawning. It could be trying to make nice. You know, if you can't beat them, join them. It, it could very much look like that as well. And obviously you have the people who fight back. You have the people who just just get out of there. <laughs> you have your fleers, right? And you have people who seem to be stuck in place. And I mean, that stuck in place can last not just a semester. I mean, it can be a, a 40-year career in terms oh of- gosh, I'm like t- putting faces and names to all these examples. In terms of me. freeze. But yes. I think thinking about that through the lens of the ecosystem being, tra- being racially traumatizing, that allows, I think for me, when I started to look to look at that situation through that frame, my, my clinical frame, my counseling psychologist frame, it helped me to have some more empathy for people whose responses were showing up in ways that were different than mine. And and as a person who, <laughs> like, I, I, I personally, Nancy, resent having to be the person that, like, speaks up at something, you know, like, I mean, I don't have a problem speaking up, but I'll look around and be like, okay, is nobody going to say the obvious, okay, I guess it's going to be me. <laughs> and that's not even what I think of as necessarily my core personality. You know, I think of myself as fairly laid back, although most people do and they may not be. But I can think of, I can think of many, many times of being in a space where like, is anybody going to name the dysfunction for the dysfunction? Is anybody going to say the thing out loud? And over time, I felt like I was bearing the burden of that. And then, you know, you leave the meetings <laughs> and then people send you emails or they find you later and say like, oh, that was so brave of you. Or I love when you said that. Or I love when you speak up. And I'm just like, no, thank you. <laughs> no, thank yes. you. Don't, don't, like, don't compliment me. Where yeah. were you? What's <laughs> happening? What's happening? I don't need, I, no one, I don't need your praise. We, this system needs your support and advocacy, right? But, but I have looked at, looked at that through the lens of, of fear. And I would say ultimately one of the reasons why in, in kind of the, these Christian spaces that you, that you talked about is that are struggling the way they are. Even though people talk about like boldness for Christ or whatever, I would say there's a real deficit of courage. And mm-hmm. what, what creates courage for the Christian is love. Deep, deep love, love of God, love for each other, this new love of self that we even are invited to embrace allows us to have the type of courage that we can we can say what needs to be said or be quiet when we need to be quiet. And there's a lack of courage is what I have found in too many white evangelical spaces that even if there's so-called good intention, there is not the fortitude to suffer any type of discomfort for the sake of righteousness, which is the other side of the coin of justice. And for me, once I discern that, that there is no courage, then, I, then my trauma training comes into gear and I'm like, well, this is an unsafe place. 
because obvious obvious things could be going wrong and no one will speak to it. And then I know I need to I need to move on. You nailed it on the head. I mean, I see so much lack of courage and leadership, deep fear of I mean, there's you know, there are real um, challenges to a lot of the Christian universities, a lot of churches. Some are going, you know, like I think some think the solution is actually becoming more hateful and more exclusive and more, you know, conservative in the sense of just politically, right? And rather than whatever, you know, traditions or morality, really, it's all kind of so mixed up with kind of white Christian nationalism. I mean, it's so fear-based, and judgment-based. And it feels like if I were a young, I, I, I'm first generation, I call myself a first generation Christian. I am the first to accept. And I was probably about 12 or 13 at the time. I would have never, if, if I was born now and I was 12 and 13 now, I don't think I would have been drawn to Christianity because I was drawn through love, drawn through not just love, but unconditional love. That was so... The gospel. So, yes. <laughs> yes. The gospel, Nancy. Yes, the gospel. Thank you. Thank you. And you know, people have been saying, the, using the word the gospel for the wrong, again, like you said, like what kind of Jesus, you know, what kind of gospel are we talking about? So thank you for naming that because that is, that it was the good news that I was drawn to, but people have used gospel, like they've perverted that word, you know, and used it to justify, like I'm not following the gospel because I'm talking about, you know, racism or Asians too much or something. Just all sorts of weirdness that that never, it doesn't even seem right to, I mean, obviously it's not right, but it seems like I, I don't even know what kind of uh, belief system it is, right? I, I, I'm, it's not the belief system that I would have been drawn to. It's not a belief system that I'm drawn to right now. And like you said, you know, that I'm actively escaping, actively pushing away as far as I can. But, you know, I mean, we're talking about this because there's a huge swath of people that are in this demographic, right, of beliefs, of misguided belief, in my opinion. And and people, you know, have these folks, and, and they're not all white. There's a lot of folks, right, who who are in this camp, like you said, maybe, maybe because of Fawn, Fawn, you said Fawn. I've never heard of that before. I am going to like look that up and really, because I feel like that perfectly encompasses so many people I know where they're just in the Fawn state of, you know, and anyway, so yeah, I mean, so what can Christians of color do to survive, thrive, and liberate? Oh, my word. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, and now I will be healed forever and ever. <laughs> I, look, I'll be telling myself, Nancy, wait a minute. Um, well, you know, you know, well, first, let me let me say some more bad news. Right. So like, it's, oh, no. it, 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 I mean, it's imperative that we that we really hunker down in the disciplines of the Christian faith and prayer and fasting and confession and repentance, like old school Christianity. And I say that because if we look sociologically, right, this does not, this is not about to clean up. I, I, I the trajectory is actually, this is going to get worse. I mean, I, and I don't consider myself to be a pessimistic person by any means. I do think of myself as a realist. And if I'm looking at uh, history. If I'm looking at the the present moment as assessed sociologically and psychologically, oh, you know, a, as we move, as the demographics change, I do anticipate we'll have more of a January sixth. 
type of (laughs) vigilant reaction, right? And if no one is discipling people who have this this Jesus who does not feel familiar to me, if no one is discipling them into a God who identifies with the, the marginalized, the unseen, and the hurting, then we will get more and more and more of this toxicity in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is going to have, which it has and is having huge implications and consequences. With that being said, we are not alone. We're not alone because there is the Holy Spirit yet at work. <laughs> and we're also not alone because throughout the, the pages of history from continent to continent, we have the testimony of the saints that we need to draw from. And just because white evangelical Christianity has the most money, and has the biggest microphone does not mean that that is the, uh, it certainly doesn't mean that's where we need to go to learn how to be equipped for this season. And I would say that there are, uh, there's, there's a testimony of the saints from various traditions that were not in bed with empire, that recognized that they were this fringe minority movement of quirky Uh, peculiar people who love Jesus, who rescued babies that were thrown, literally thrown away. I mean, you have to think about the, the, the face of early Christianity. And throughout, not just historically, but presently, there are believers all over the world who we have not given the microphone to. We have not given them publishing deals and they don't and they don't articulate their faith in writing anyhow because they live their faith that we need to sit at their feet and be discipled by their stories, their testimony. And I think that's going to be nece- necessary for us in order to be salt and light in, in this this moment. And so for me and my own family of origin, I pull from the tradition of the historic Black church in America. What what does it mean to have a church movement that was the, some of the residual African Christianity came over, we know that up to 30% on, on the boats. And yet we have these believers who were being told that they were property, that they were not people. And yet from that, they developed the spirituals and a theology of somebodiness that transformed the society around them. And that's the testimony of that one tradition in, in somewhat recent history. But I think we have to start shaking the, the Christian family tree and, and remembering the, the prayers and witness of our great-grandmothers. I mean, even if they weren't our literal great-grandmothers, but the great-grandmothers of the Christian tradition and learning how to persevere, how to pray, how to show up in, in this present moment. Mm. That's wonderful. And in the end of the chapter, you actually, your co-author, Chad Brennan, actually provides a response because, you know, white folks need to get in on this conversation of racial trauma because when you inflict trauma or inadvertently or avertently, you are part of the pain. You experience that pain, too. So so tell me more about that decision to have him kind of have a response at the end of the chapter. Totally. We're all mis- we're all misshaped by sin. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> All of us, right? And there is something called, you know, kind of like perpetrator PTSD, right? For those mm. who do the harm, but also those who observe it or who are complicit in it, we are mm. all misshaped by injustice, by sin. And so in a, a very individualistic social context like we have in the States, it'd be very easy to say, well, not my issue. I didn't do it. Let me keep moving. No, but we're in this toxic ecosystem. And so the racial trauma that is experienced 
by an Asian American person on the West Coast, you might think that you have nothing to do with that. You might feel like you can just pass by, but as a bystander, you are also a part of the ecosystem and a part of you is is also being threatened. Your, your very calling of your humanity to love your neighbor well is at stake. And so I thought it was important for Chad to talk about his own experience and the ways in which white people bear, uh, res- white Christians <laughs> bear a particular responsibility to their brothers and sisters in Christ of color and the way that they show up and the way they also resist racial injustice. 